Well, good morning and, and welcome. It's uh, certainly uh, great to be worshiping together on uh, just another uh, beautiful morning. Uh, and we especially want to warmly welcome all of those who are uh, joining us via a live stream. We're so glad that you can be part of this morning, but we also look forward to that day uh, when we will all be back together uh, again. Uh, we're, we're currently in a series in the book of Revelation, uh, portions of which can seem very uh, strange and confusing. And because of that, I think it's very important that we ever remember and keep in mind uh, the purpose of Revelation. That is why it was written. Uh, we need to remember that Revelation was originally written to early Christians who found themselves in a place of suffering and persecution. And it was written to encourage them to press on, to keep on keeping on, to, to overcome and per uh, persevere despite difficulty, despite fa facing suffering, despite great challenges. And they were able to do so because of the picture given of a glorious and powerful God who is ultimately victorious on their behalf and will put all things right. A God who is writing a story that ends with all tears being wiped away, all sorrows comforted, where everything sad comes untrue and they dwell in a, a new and perfect world that has been prepared for them by their God and King. And that picture is particularly, I think, important to keep in mind when we come to portions of the book that just seem so bizarre and confuse, confusing that we don't know what to do with them. Like Places like the chapters that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. And just a, a warning as we begin, uh, we're about to, what we're about to read is perhaps some of the strangest stuff that you'll find in the entire Bible. In fact, I think the strangest chapter in the whole Bible is Revelation 9. I think it's the weirdest of the weird. And, and to be honest, it's the chapter I've been most apprehensive about coming to um, and, and looking at in this whole series. But here we are this morning, and we're not going to skip over it. And, and, and saying... Um, that about chapter 9 and chapter 8 as well is saying something because we've already talked at some length already in this series about the type of writing that this is. It's what we call apocalyptic writing. It's a type of writing that we don't use anymore. I mean, the Bible is, is largely made up of types of writing that, that we still use, you know, letters and stories, histories and songs. But this type of writing, nobody uses it every, ever, ever anymore. And so if you don't follow Jesus, this will sound very strange to you, what we're about to read. And if you're new to Christianity, it will also sound very strange. And if you've been a Christian for years, even decades, guess what? It still sounds very strange. Because if you're explaining the reign and rule of God and his victory over his enemies and, and the, the true picture of reality in the spiritual realm, which is what this book is largely about, to ordinary people whose lives are surrounded by you know, commuting and cornflakes and Costco, when you come to the grandeur of God who made everything and is sovereign and victorious over it, it's a, it's a totally, completely different category from the world that we normally live in. And so it's kind of hard to explain what God is like in his majesty and might without it sounding strange to our ears. Consider this analogy. 
you're given the task of trying to communicate what a electricity is to a group of people that live in mud huts that have never met anyone outside of their tribe. You know, you're somewhere in the, in the deep uh, fours of Papua New Guinea, uh, for instance, and you bump into a group of people. You've never met them. Uh, they've never met anyone outside of their tribe. And, and you've got to go explain to them what electricity is. How would you do it? Well, what you might do is you'd use things that were in their world, but it would be a totally inadequate explanation. You might say something like, I, I don't know how you do, but maybe, well, we have these trees, and, and hanging between the trees, we have these ropes. And then there's one of the bits of rope that we take down off of the tree, and we stick it into the side of the mud hut. And then we have a kind of square box, which we put against the wall of our mud hut. And instead of cooking food over a fire, we put it in this box, and then it goes, bing, and the dinner comes out much quicker. And they would stare at you like, what on earth are you talking about? Or maybe another thing we do is we sit around in the evening and we look at a, a, a different square box that's against the wall, plugged into a rope, and, and you don't know what a plug is, sorry about that, but anyway, we gather around and messages from other tribes appear on this square box in our hut. And they would just think, you have just lost the plot. You, what are you talking about? Now, in that analogy, you and I are the people in the mud hut. And the Apostle John is trying to communicate electricity to us. This is John trying to tell us that the glory and might and victorious reign and rule of God is a totally different type of thing to our normal experience. And so he says, I'm going to have to use language that I wouldn't normally use to try and explain what I see. And we need to be prepared for that because otherwise this will just sound wacky. But it's just God's way of saying, listen, this is bigger than you think. And it's very hard to explain because it's the rule and reign and victory of God. Now before we get into it directly, I do want to briefly uh, summarize the whole of Revelation so that you have some orientation and framework for the book as a whole. You have a if you like, a sense of the entire forest so you, that you don't get lost uh, amongst all of the individual trees. And this summary skips a lot of things, but it's a way of framing the book in a way that gives you a schema for understanding where you are uh, at any point. It kind of gives you some handles to hold on to. So think of the whole of Revelation, all 22 chapters, as essentially compromi compromising, comprising uh, four visions. Okay, vision one begins, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, John says in chapter one. And that's how we know a new vision is starting because he says something like, I was in the spirit and I saw or whatever it might be. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day on Patmos and I saw a vision of Jesus in the church. That's vision one and it comprises the first three chapters. Vision two is the big beast in the middle no pun intended on the word beast, and it's a vision into heaven where he says, I will, I want, at once I was in the spirit, behold, a, the, a throne stood in heaven. And it's this heavenly vision that runs from chapters 4 to chapter 16. We have the throne room, we have the one seated upon the throne, we meet the, the lamb 
who is slain, who is worthy to take the scroll. And it's under this vision that we have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, seven visions, and seven bowls, which are unpacked one at a time. Vision three, then, is in the wilderness. I was in the Spirit, and he carried me away into the wilderness. And in this vision, chapters 17 to 21, we see the overthrow of Babylon. And then the final vision, vision four, chapters 21 and 22, he carried me uh, away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he sees the bride, the church. So four visions, the theme of of, of each vision is a revealing, it's an un, unveiling. Vision one, Jesus is, reva- uh, is revealed. The apocalypse of Jesus is the first vision. We've looked at that already. Vision two is the unveiling of God's throne. And it's the big one in the middle. We've started in the last few weeks. We've been, we've been looking at that, at that. We continue to do so where God is sovereign. We're seeing over this whole thing, even evil. Even the rising and falling of empires who are trying to kill the church. Then in vision three, you have the unveiling of the harlot, and we'll come back to that in coming weeks. And then vision four, the unveiling of the bride, the church, and the new creation. And so that is a basic framework or schema for for what is going on in this book with all of its sections broken down into little bits. It's not a timeline of history. I, I don't think, as you've probably picked up if, if you've been with us any of these Sundays, I don't think that's the way to read this book at all. Although I think it relates to real events, uh, I don't think it's the best way of mapping it. So uh, I just don't think that's how it works. But rather to see it uh, as being these four visions which reveal four realities. And then in between, you've got lots of sevens, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions, seven bulls, etc., which we're working through. And that's basically the framework. Now, if you have any questions on that or anything else um, as we go through this series, uh, a whole bunch of questions will probably emerge as, or have emerged or will emerge as we go through it because the imagery and symbolism of this book uh, can be tricky. And maybe you have questions from last week or this week. Certainly you will in the weeks to come. And so what we've decided to do is hold a Revelation Forum, uh, which we're going to host via Zoom next Sunday evening, uh, the 25th. And it will be an opportunity for us to come together and cover topics that uh, we just can't cover on Sunday mornings. And, And you'll be able to ask questions and have discussion about things that you want to talk about when it comes to the book of Revelation as a whole. So uh, if you're going through the book on your own or we're reading it together and you, you might think, ah, that's an issue, I'd love to discuss it, and they, they, they don't seem to have covered it yet, well, then come along uh, next week uh, to our Revelation Forum on the, the 25th of October, and we'll hopefully address it and talk it through. But this morning, finally, uh, I promise you, we're, we're going to get there. We come to the seven trumpets, which cover chapters 8 through 11. And I felt like doing uh, four chapters on a Sunday would be too much, even for me. Uh, and so what we're going to do is take two chapters this week and then two um, the next, which is challenging because we'll end today and they're really a whole. And it's like when you're watching a, a TV show and it says to be continued and there'll be a sense where um, this morning will be, a, uh, a, at the end, will be a, a, to be continued as we see uh, the wonderful and beautiful conclusion uh, that we see in the seven trumpets. So this morning we're reading from Revelation chapter 8 and 9, starting from the verses where we left off last Sunday. So starting at Revelation 8 and verse 6, 
and then moving through to the end of chapter 9. And you will see why, as I say, chapter 9 is the strangest chapter in the Bible. This is pretty weird. I think you'll agree. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great burning mountain with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his tr trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night." Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fall from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke from the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then, the smoke came then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the, of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like, woman, like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon, which means destroyer, of course, is the devil. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And you guys are glad you came this morning, I'm sure. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates 
color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plague, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. <laughs> Wowzers. Uh, like this is not the easiest part of the Bible to read. Uh, but what I want to do is just look for a moment, uh, first of all, at, at, at the trumpets as a whole, and then I'll talk about the weird and wonderful locust, scorpion, horse, lion things in chapter 9 and what I think's going on there. And, and I just say, I want to say up front that we've got to hold some of this lightly, right? I mean, I could be wrong. I, I try not to be, but if I am wrong, I probably wouldn't know it anyway. Uh, although I'm pretty sure one of you at least will let me know. Uh, but this is what I think is going on. And I, as I say, I think we need to hold it lightly-ish. And the first thing that I want to say is that trumpets in the Bible, I mean, they represent a bunch of things, but they represent worship and war in particular. Uh, if you think through the Old Testament stories, when people blow trumpets, you'll find... Uh, there are various things that they connote, but, but a big thing that they represent, two big things are worship and war. And so in the Old Testament, there are two kinds of, of trumpets. There's the shofar, which is made of, of, uh, of a ram's horn. And the, the shofar is one of the, the, the one that announces war. The, oh, you know that, you know that one, you know, not the, you know, the, the, the kind of bouncy kind of trumpet that we often think, but that, that call, that, you, you know the noise, you, like in the, the, the return of the king, when suddenly you hear that noise and you turn and you see the armies marching towards you. The chauffeur is a, is a war trumpet. It, it says, we are going to battle now. And of course, that's what's happening as they march around the city of Jericho. They blow the trumpets and the walls fall down. It's a military su summons in that sense. Get ready for battle or something like that. And so that's the ram's horn. But there's also the silver trumpets in Numbers uh, chapter 10. And the silver trumpets are the trumpets that are more like what you and I uh, would imagine, like a sort of hammered uh, metal thing. And those trumpets are there to summon the people of Israel to sacrifice and feast and to worship. And so, for instance, think about the Day of Atonement. The Feast of Trumpets was on the first day of the seventh month to, and gets ready for the Day of Atonement. So trumpets symbolize either worship and war, and those two things are often what's going on when a trumpet is in the Bible. Not always, but, but usually. So the trumpet sequence we're, we're, we're just reading is building up a sort of battle sequence but it's also getting us ready for a moment of worship. And the battle sequence is chapters 8 and 9, as we just read, and the worship sequence, as we'll see next Sunday, in chapter 11. And that's mainly what's happening in Revelation 8 and 9. It's, it's like a military getting ready for, effectively, the judgment of God is coming to parts of the earth and parts of humanity. 
for, as we saw at the very end of the text, not repenting of all, uh, all sorts of idolatries and things that they have done. But, but we need to go a little bit further into that because the trumpets, like the seals, are deliberately structured to make the point that judgment is escalating in the story of the book. And if you go back to the seals, you'll see that the seals strike a quarter of the earth, whereas the trumpets strike a third of the earth. And by the time we get to the bowls, they're destroying all of it. So what it's showing is that, it, that the judgment is escalating, right? Like that's one of the things to pick up from the sequence. So we need to know that this, this isn't random. It's not like, and then they blew a trumpet and some awful things happen, and then another trumpel, trumpet, and then, an, and, and then more awful things happen. But that what John is doing and what John is seeing is, is walking us through a sequence of deliberate, stru- deliberately structured judgment that is supposed to remind us of two different parts of the Bible. The creation of the world in seven days in Genesis, and then the plagues upon Egypt in Exodus. Both the days of creation and the plagues, in other words, the creation of the world and the judgment of the world are being summed up in what is happening in John's vision of the trumpets. So the trumpets, they strike the earth, then the sea and the rivers, then the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars. And you might at this point be going, oh, I know that sequence because that's what happens in Genesis. Earth, sea, rivers, and heavens correspond to the first four creation days. God created the heavens and the earth, and then he separates the seas, and then he separates the land so that effectively there's a distinction between land and, and, and water, that that exists, and then you have the sun, moon, and stars. In other words, this is a poetic, symbolic way of describing fullness of judgment upon all of creation. And the judgment that comes borrows imagery from the Exodus. And actually, when you stop and think about it, you immediately go, yeah, a lot of the imagery in Revelation is stuff like water turning to blood. There's locusts. There's darkness in the middle of the day. It's full of that sort of thing, right? And actually, you stand back from it and you go, all right. So what John is doing is he's showing us that the whole of creation is being echoed in the judgment God is bringing in Exodus-like language upon the whole of the earth as a result of sin. Now you might be going, man, I don't know. And that's fine. Like this is fire hydrant drinking time, I know, because some of us are going, I've never really even thought about these chapters, let alone read them. But this is how I would map it out. The first four trumpets are echoing the plagues which fell on Egypt under Moses. Four disasters of judgment on the land, sea, rivers, and heaven. In other words, on all of creation. The problem is that when you get to the fifth and sixth trumpets, they involve these just bizarre creatures. You have these armies of locust scorpions and horse lions, and there's they're rushing into battle and lots of people are dying. I mean, this is not easy no matter how many biblical symbols you've read. And I I did say this was Scripture's strangest chapter and you're now going, well, yeah, I'll just just give up at this point. I have no idea what is going on here. So here we are introduced to locust scorpions that sting people and don't kill them. 
and to an army of 200 million horses with lion's heads. And this is where the Apache helicopters and armored vehicle uh, or tanks come in for some people. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, good. Count yourself fortunate. Because this is where some Bible teachers get a, a little bit carried away into all sorts of flights of fancy. This is where that comes from. People think, wow, man, flying locust scorpions, 200 million strong army. Are these, are, are, are these real things? And I think at this point, I'd say, well, it depends on what you mean by real. Literal? No. Real as referring to a genuine thing? Yes, but, it, but not literal at all. I don't think that's how you're supposed to read the imagery in Revelation. But these grotesque creatures emerge, and they are described in a way, there's a sort of a, a type of Hebrew form of poetry that is basically, you know in the Song of Songs, for example, it, it says, oh, how lovely you are. Your, your head is like this, your eyes are like that, your neck is like this, your feet or like whatever, right? You know, it's a, it's a poetry in which each part of a lover's body is described and praised in turn, often using exotic, um, extravagant, or even far-fetching metaphors. Well, these creatures are described like that, with seven features, just like Jesus is described with seven features in chapter one. Well, they do the same thing with these weird creatures, head, face, um, hair, teeth, breastplates, wings, and tails. They're not quite as attractive as the woman in the Song of, Solomon, Song of Songs, I suspect, although I think some would, would say that the woman in Song of Songs, if you take her appearance literally, you'd have a very, very strange-looking woman. You know, you know, you, you know your hair is like a, a flock of go a goats, you know, very, very odd. You, your breasts are like, you know, uh, fawns of a gazelle. You think, uh, you know, no, I, I really hope they're not, and all those sorts of things. So in some ways, that, that helps us read this, doesn't it? Because you know, when you read Song of, Psalms, uh, Song of Songs, that's not a literal picture of a woman. It's poetic imagery. And the same is happening here. The reality is that angels, spiritual beings, whether good or evil, unless they take physical form, as they sometimes do in, in, the, in the Bible, but in their natural state, angels are invisible. And so you have to picture them as something. And I think in a way, this is just a way of picturing the angelic powerful reality and the demonic grotesque evil reality to, to, to try and help us see reality, which, which I think is often what Revelation is trying to do, to wake up, to wake us up, to throw cold water in our face and say, don't mess around with this stuff, all right? You know, idolatry just looks like, oh, no, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. No, no, these guys are going to kill you. Or false teaching look, looks like, ah, oh, you know, it, it's just, some, it's just a, a weird idea. No, 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 it's like demons coming in like scorpions trying to strike you dead, and you need to stomp on their heads. I think that's what it's trying to capture for us. Now, what I find st striking here is that this is not the only place in the New Testament where we find an association between the fall of Satan to the earth, which is, happen which, which is happening in this chapter, and the stings of scorpions that are not going to hurt believers. 
right? That same configuration of imagery also occurs in the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. The same thing comes together. The 72 come back and say, even the demons submitted to us. And Jesus said, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And believe you me, you're going to be okay. Scorpions are not even going to be, have power to sting you because of the fall of Satan from heaven. And so Revelation 9 and Luke 10 are talking about the same thing in my view. They're describing the consequences of the victory of Christ for the casting down of the devil from heaven. And the fact that although demons will attack and try to strike the church through a combination of false teaching, accusation, and martyrdom, the church will be protected from being killed. That's what I think is happening in the first half of Revelation 9. So people will handle this differently. Are the locust scorpions simply opponents of the gospel? Like, would Saul, you know, the Pharisee, before he was converted, would Saul be an example of a locust scorpion in real life? As in somebody who effectively is being used by Satan to attack the church and to destroy her witness by accusing her of things, throwing them in jail and killing them. And by the way, I don't think John is writing this going, you know that guy Saul, I, I, you know, I know he's been dead for a few years, and, and, uh, and he was a really good guy in the end, but in, in his day, he was a right old locust scorpion. I'm not saying John is making that point. But I wonder if that's actually a much better picture of what's going on than an Apache helicopter, in my view. I hope you can see why, even if you disagree, which is absolutely fine. As I say, I hold these things lightly. Peter Lightheart, a uh, commentator, I found helpful. He says that basically Revelation 8 to 11 describes in apocalyptic poetry what Acts describes in historical prose. That actually this bit of Revelation corresponds to the, the story of the growth and yet persecution of the church. And I know it sounds like a stretch, right? It's, it's a weird passage no matter how you read it. But I think the imagery, particularly the imagery of, 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 of scorpions and the falling of Satan from heaven, may, make that a better reader, reading than, than, than others that I have seen. That's the first half of the chapter. In the second half of the chapter, we then get 200 million horses with lion's heads. And, and, and we were thought we were out of the woods, but we're not. And they arrive, and they kill a third of mankind. And, and that's pretty odd, too. What are we to make of that? Again, I think the third here is symbolic. Because I think, again, the way the the book builds is to go from a quarter under the seals to a third under the trumpets, and then actually by the time the bulls come, it's, it's everybody. And so I think that the quarter to a third to the whole is a way of indicating escalating judgment. I, I don't think that it means that there was, a, there was or is a day in human history when a demonic uh, marauding army comes out and a third of the people are suddenly dead. I don't think that's what it means. But I do think that what we are meant to see in this chapter are two things. And, 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 and these, I think, um, are crucial. First of all, we need to see that despite the horrific and fearsome picture portrayed here, we need to see through it all is the reality and certainty that Satan is down and out. He is excluded and defeated. 
that he is not some powerful rival who opposes God, but he is broken, a broken and battered has-been. And he's desperately clawing to keep his hold of human hearts before the second coming of Jesus when he knows he and his demons will meet their inevitable doom. And it's very important that we see beyond the initial picture of, 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 that we see here of what looks like a victorious Satan at, head of, uh, at the head of his destructive armies throughout A.D. history. Yes, it's true that his locust army released by the, the, the fifth trumpet and his cavalry army released by the sixth tr- uh, trumpet, both demonic ar- armies are fearsome and terrifying. But note what is also true. They are like a dog on a leash. They are restricted to the exact limits that God has set for them. He sets the exact moment when they can begin their work. And he binds them as powerless captives until then. And he sets the exact length of their work, and he tells them who they can and cannot harm. You see, Jesus wants us to be struck, first, that Satan appears to be in control, and second, that he isn't really. And and that is how things appear throughout A.D. history. And he wants us to be those people who see beyond the first impression. And this shouldn't lead us to, you know, some kind of unhealthy Christian triumphalism. Satan is defeated, but he has fallen from mighty heights and, and, and shouldn't be trifled with. Make no mistake, he will ravage the nations on planet Earth with venom and spite until Jesus comes again. But we mustn't ever forget that our enemy is a mere creature fighting a battle he cannot win against the one who is seated on the throne, whose vastly superior wisdom makes each of Satan's weapons a rod to discipline idolaters with an aim of bringing them to repentance. The message of Revelation 9 is that despite appearances, the star that fell from heaven can never withstand the forces of heaven Even in the darkest points of A.D. history, God is still on his throne. But we also mustn't miss the chapter's sobering message. And I think in many ways, one of the big themes of Revelation is that it is a book of judgment and blessing. And it's a book in which it pulls no punches, both on the glorious blessing and future of the people of God and on the judgment of people who oppose God. And, And... I think what apocalyptic language particularly does is it draws much sharper contrast than many of us are comfortable with. Because most of us go, you know, the classic one, you know, I have a neighbor or I have a coworker who's just, I mean, just one of the nicest guys. And his wife is one of the nicest people. And in the end, well, me and, and them, I mean, there's really not much difference. And a lot of time, that's the world that, that we live in, isn't it? And then you read apocalyptic, and apocalyptic forces a much starker divide than that. And Jesus does too, right? At the end, he says, there's tares and wheats, there's sheep and there's goats. And this, in a way, this kind of literature is trying to heighten the contrast so we can see it, so we don't just get all blurry and mushy. And, and it, it's, it's text like this. It's not the whole picture, of course, but in a sense, you have to see the world as being the blessed and the judged. And you need texts like this to waken you up and go, wow, this is not a game. This is serious stuff. 
The judgment of God will fall. It's just a question of when on all of us, actually. And I'm either going to be, like we saw last week, you know, who can stand? Well, the people who can stand are people who are hidden by the blood of the Lamb. And if you're not, you're in big trouble. And you need texts like this to remind you so that there's an urgency to it. And so the application in that sense is to say, don't mess around with, with false teaching or idolatry or immorality or any of these things that these people are struck down for. But, but bear in mind that there is a spiritual warfare that takes place in your world right now, and we mustn't monkey around with these things. But as we are going to see next week, as to be continued, uh, there is a culmination that we come to in the the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Uh, when we see, uh, once again, those who are protected gathered around the throne in worship, and we can look forward uh, to that next week. But let's pray and uh, end our time uh, and the text at this place. Father, we're grateful for your word. We thank you for the promises and assurances that it brings to us. There is something startling that really arrests us, and we're grateful for that because we find ourselves so often living lives that are anesthetized. We, we live numb to these spiritual realities. We just go about our business, the ordinary, every day, and we forget. We forget um, what is actually taking place in the reality of things. And we thank you that you've drawn back the, the curtain of heaven. You've given us a glimpse of, of realities that are true and real and of, of great importance and in our lives. And so we ask that you would uh, take these truths. Don't let us easily forget them. Don't let us just fall back into the routine of our ordinary everyday life without being consciously aware that there is a great battle going on. But uh, to not do so with fear for the one who is our enemy has been defeated. Uh, Christ has secured victory for he is the victor. We pray in his glorious and precious name. Amen.